If you polled an assortment of passers-by asking them to name the primary exports of the Nordic countries, you would doubtless get big numbers for solid, somewhat quirky motor vehicles, unfussy if occasionally infuriating self-assembly furniture, oil, gas and fish. But there's another Nordic export, difficult to put a price on, but arguably the most valuable of them all. Peace. The politicians of the Nordic countries have built a formidable reputation for bringing their proverbially stolid, practical approach to somewhat more volatile jurisdictions. A partial list of the conflicts in which they have mediated includes Colombia, Nagorno-Karabakh, Georgia, Guatemala, Western Sahara, the Philippines, Sudan, Yemen and what was then Yugoslavia. The first two secretary-generals of the United Nations were Norwegian and Swedish. Why are the Nordic countries so good at this? Why are the rest of us so slow to learn? And do the recent moves by Finland and Sweden away from neutrality and towards NATO change anything? This is The Foreign Desk. During the so-called Cod Wars, the fishing disputes between Britain and Iceland in the 1950s and the 1970s, Iceland had its way gradually, and one reason was the fact that Iceland was a small state without a navy, without a military, and you don't use full force against a defenseless small country like Iceland. So that's how you could punch above your weight. You know, if Tony Blair and I had had any understanding of how complicated and impossible Northern Ireland was in its history, we never tried to tackle the problem. So you need to have a bit of naivety, and that's why I think one of the important things that Nordics bring to this. They're not dyed-in-the-wool ideological about these issues. They're prepared to be naive, and that's what you need if you're going to solve a problem. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from the President of Iceland and from a former Prime Minister of Finland. But first of all, for a discussion of the theory and practice of Nordic diplomacy, I'm joined from Helsinki by Dr. Janne Talas, a CEO of the Marti Atisari Peace Foundation, named after the former Finnish President and 2008 Nobel Peace Laureate. And from London, we're joined by Jonathan Powell, CEO of the Conflict Resolution NGO Intermediate and former Chief of Staff to UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, in which capacity Jonathan served as Chief British Negotiator on Northern Ireland, leading up to the Good Friday Agreement. Janne, first of all, is there a short answer to the question of why Nordic diplomats are so disproportionately prominent? What qualities do you manage to bring to diplomacy that other people don't seem to be able to manage? I think there are cultural factors that explain that. I'm coming from the part of the world that these predictability and transparency are very much appreciated. And having a huge ego, it's not that well perceived. I think there's also a sense of there is a very practical approach to life. And then there is the sense of that we are a bit circumspect with our emotions, except in ice hockey games. I think there's a tradition to really resolve issues through talk and dialogue and negotiations. And also, we don't have this colonial baggage that is a major issue for many countries. There's a few things there that we will come back to, but basically, Jana, just to follow that up, all the cliches are true. Yeah, there are certain aspects that make us boring and predictable would actually be good in negotiations. 
Jonathan, we wanted to bring you into this episode as a sort of impartial arbiter. You have, of course, been a British diplomat yourself working to resolve conflict, most prominently in Northern Ireland, but you've seen Scandinavians doing diplomacy up close in in many other scenarios. Do they go about it in a particular kind of way? I agree with Yano that actually boring is good in the context of trying to resolve conflicts. You want people who don't come in with a great big ego as well at the table. You need people who are low-key, ready to get on with things. But I think there's something beyond that, which is the patience of particularly Nordic uh, mediators in these circumstances. They're prepared to stick at it. They make long-term investments and commitments as countries to this. You take Norway and Colombia, for example. You know, If Britain turns its attention to somewhere, it lasts six months if we're lucky. They will do 10 years, two decades, whatever it takes, and they'll invest in that and stay with it. And I think that's actually determinative because that's why they get chosen to be the mediators, because they're there, they're trusted, and they've established relationships. Jana, you've already partially answered the question in suggesting that that diplomatic approach is an extension of a kind of a Scandinavian character. But is it also an extension of Scandinavian domestic politics, which is known for being pragmatic and compromise driven and, as Jonathan said, unusually tends to think further ahead than the end of next week? Yeah, we are talking about the countries that has a very complex multi-party coalitions that are running the countries. The politics, you have to always have coalitions. You have to work with other people in in order to resolve conflicts. That is absolutely required. And I think there is something in that also the kind of the inclusiveness, the strong role of women in societies that is absolutely natural for us. Finland is an interesting case. I think it's a bit of a odd man out because Finland stands out also because the kind of the story is so wonderful from a basket case country that emerged from a really bloody civil war 100 years ago, somehow emerges world's happiest nation through war with Soviet Union and Nokia and stuff. So I think in the Finnish cases that the narrative is really fascinating. And that makes us also interesting to interact because lots of people want to kind of, there are societies that want to emulate that. But I think that's a particular Finnish case. But I think there is a kind of certain aspects are, are purely very strongly Nordic. Jonathan, I want to put to you a point that Jana was making about the relative lack of imperial baggage that Scandinavian countries get to approach most places with. For a British diplomat, I guess the absolute opposite is the case. And for a British diplomat working in Northern Ireland of all places, that is excess baggage if ever there was a case of it. How burdened do you feel as a British diplomat by way of contrast when when you're trying to negotiate in places where Britain may or may not have been involved at some point or another? Well, I sometimes think my work now as a mediator outside of government is mainly trying to clean up the messes made by my ancestors from Nigeria to Myanmar and elsewhere, where they have created a lot of these conflicts by the way they set up the states in those places. So sometimes there's a, a duty that the Nordics don't have that we do have to try and deal with this. But I think Jan is right. The absence of imperial ties and the absence of being seen as a great power not that Britain is much now, but, but, the, but the Nordics don't have that problem. If you take, for example, Sri Lanka, when the Sri Lankan government was looking for mediators for their conflict with the Tamils, they looked at a number of countries. They first of all thought about the UN, said, no, we're not having the UN interfering in our affairs. Then they thought about places like Britain. They said, no, too much imperial baggage. And they went for Norway because they saw Norway as a very long way away, having no imperial baggage. And they chose Norway to be the mediator for that reason. So, yes, it definitely has an impact from that point of view. 
So, Jonathan, to follow that up, is there kind of a disadvantage built into conflict resolution as a Briton in that you do get a response from some places of, God, not these people again? It's just a different approach because there is a different advantage, which is the flip side of the disadvantage. So what I tend to find is people think that you might have some greater knowledge of their conflict. They often say to you, unlike the Americans, you know, you guys as the colonisers have some historical knowledge of our conflict in our country. And they also sometimes, particularly if you're dealing with Islamist terrorists, think it'd be quite nice to have someone who could speak to great Satan as well as little Satan in terms of the United States. So there is an advantage which is different. So what we do is complementary but different from what the Nordics do because they can't do that. But equally, they're therefore much less threatening and much more likely to be chosen to be the public mediators rather than behind the, we work exclusively behind the scenes. Obvious example, the most famous example in many ways, was Marti Artasari, who uh, was chosen to mediate in Aceh exactly because he was from Finland, not from some country with, with lots of ties to Indonesia or any ties to Aceh, and did a brilliant job of it. And of course, then created CMI, which Yanni is now head of. Yana, is there an aspect as well in which, I mean, I I don't want to say that the Scandinavian countries are not military powers because they are military powers, but they're not military powers in the way that the United States, the United Kingdom or France are. Are there respects in which that can be an advantage? This is a bit of an inversion, I guess, of Theodore Roosevelt's maxim. So instead, you are both treading softly and not carrying a big stick. Yeah, before getting into any stick business, two points. And I think Jonathan is a legend in this field. And it's great to be talking with Jonathan on this. And he's a really right person to comment on this. But I want to up the ante on the colonial part. We don't have a baggage. We have impeccable anti-imperialist credentials in the North. We have trained the freedom fighters. We did support these guys. That is important in some places. On the military side, I think you have a point. Yeah, us Northerners, if you put the Nordics together, seriously, there is a military power in the North. So we have, there is a significant military power. But at the same time, no one in their right mind would think, we have to read a lot of Stieg Larsson, to think that the Nordics would attack you somehow. That really, it is purely defensive. And I think that's something that we have been able to very clearly show that uh, we, the Nordics, would not threaten anybody. And I think what the Nordic countries have always been really, really strong and emphasizing, they are producers of security. They are not consumers of security. They want to create security in their neighborhood and that you need the military to do that. Just finally, I want to ask each of you if there's one particular process or one particular moment which for you encapsulates the distinctively Scandinavian diplomacy we've been talking about. Jana, for you, if you had to point to one triumph of the kind of thing we're talking about as an illustration of those qualities that you've enumerated, which one would you think of? I want to underline the boringness of the Northerners. Really, I think if you look at the last 20 years... If you look at the Finnish and Swedish policy of institutionalizing it, uh, the mediation and dialogue into the UN, EU, OSCE, supporting AU, ASEAN, I think that has been a significant, it's a great work and it has not received much of interest. But if you look how much the few Nordic countries have pushed consistently big international organizations to consider more mediation and dialogue. And I think that is unsung uh, success story. And that tells you the boringness of the Northerners. We think that this will be a lasting effect if the UN and EU are more open to dialogue, if they have more, more kind of capability, more resources to do that, that will make long-term good. 
Jonathan, do you have a particular moment in mind when you think of a a triumph in making the world more boring? And I do not say that as a pejorative at all. Having reported from quite a few, in inverted commas, exciting datelines, I can well understand why the people in them would crave nothing more than a protracted period of relative tedium. Well, God save us from interesting times, quite rightly. But the I'm going to cheat and say two. One, which is obviously a well-known one, which is the Oslo Accords, which wasn't just Norway, it was also Sweden. It was a long-term investment by Sweden and Norway together, which really, even in the last moments with meetings in Stockholm and meetings in Oslo, that led to that. And that was really a breakthrough. It led to plays as well as actual peace for a period of time. Sadly, it failed on the implementation stakes. And the others I think I would point to, less well-known perhaps, is in Colombia, the FARC agreement, where the Norwegians had invested for a long time in training the military in IHL and other issues, and therefore were chosen as one of the two witnesses, along with Cuba, to the FARC talks, and they stayed with it. And again, I think that was a pretty good investment in boring that's paid off in terms of lives saved and progress made in terms of peace. You could find many others too, but those are the two that stick in my mind. Jonathan, is there ever a a disadvantage, a certain amount of naivety in the, the Nordic nations not being quite able to grasp why everywhere isn't like Scandinavia? I actually think there's a big advantage in being naive. You know, if Tony Blair and I had had any understanding of how complicated and impossible Northern Ireland was in its history, we would never tried to tackle the problem. So you need to approach it fresh. There is a problem amongst diplomats, which I call the Dennis Ross syndrome, which is you've been dealing with a particular conflict, in his case, the Middle East, for decades, three decades in his case, actually three and a half decades. And the problem is, you know, every reason why it can't be solved. And in the end, conflicts are usually solved by the same things you tried in the first place. You know, in Northern Ireland, it was the Sunningdale Agreement that came back again in the form of the Good Friday Agreement. So you need to have a bit of naivety. And that's, I think, one of the important things that Nordics bring to this. They're not dyed-in-the-wool ideological about these issues. They're prepared to be naive. And that's what you need if you're going to solve a problem. I could add in on that because I think that's a really, really good point. I remember 20 years, almost 30 years ago, I got the advice that when, when you are in this business, you either grow naive or cynical. You have to choose. And I profoundly, like Jonathan, I choose to be naive rather than cynical. But at the same time, you cannot be naive on geopolitics. You have to be very hard-nosed on that. But it's the worldview. It's something to do with the optimism. And yeah, I'm happy to try something again. And the third time. And the fourth time. It might work. That's the kind of the peacemaking. Dr. Janne Talas and Jonathan Powell, thank you both very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio, and joining me now from Helsinki is Alexander Stubb, Professor at the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. Professor Stubb formerly served as Finland's Prime Minister from 2014 to 2015, having previously held cabinet posts, including Minister of Foreign Affairs. First of all, when you were serving in government as Prime Minister or Foreign Minister, what was your personal interpretation of the idea that there is a specifically Nordic approach to mediation and diplomacy? Well, I guess there is a track record. I mean, we've seen a lot of mediation from the Norwegians, also from the Swedes. They've always been very strong in multilateral institutions. And of course, Finland as well. I mean, President Marti Ahtisaari got the Nobel Peace Prize in 2008 for his peace mediation in Namibia, in Kosovo, in Aceh, and Northern Ireland. So there is this long tradition. It's kind of easier for us to do because we come from small countries and we're kind of inoffensive, if you know what I mean. 
I wanted to ask specifically, though, about one instance where you were very much at the sharp end of it. And this is going back to 2008 when you were foreign minister and you embark on this extraordinary journey from Tbilisi to Gori and beyond uh, in cahoots with Bernard Kuchner, who was then the French foreign minister. What was it like trying to put together some sort of peace plan in a situation like that? Basically, it's probably more haphazard than what people think. I had been foreign minister for four months, and I was chairman of the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And because the OSC had a strong mandate in Georgia, we went in. And basically, after some short conversation, we opened the laptop of my then advisor and current CEO of Marti Ahtisaris Peace Foundation, CMI, and crafted a four to five point ceasefire agreement, which then was later on negotiated in Moscow. When you interacted with Lavrov back then, did you get the sense that he, representing Russia, felt more, I guess, comfortable dealing with Finland, with which Russia had a very different kind of relationship than it did with much of the rest of Europe? Well, yeah, I guess probably. I mean, I had known... Sergei Lavrov for quite a while because he was well known in diplomatic circles. He had been Russia's UN ambassador for 10 years in New York and then he had been foreign minister at that stage already for quite a few years. Now I think he's approaching 20 years or something like that. So he's been in office almost for life like uh, former Soviet foreign minister Gromyko. So it was probably easier for him to deal with me than with anyone else. But at the same time, then when crunch time came, you know, it was the big boys around the table. So that's when President Sarkozy of France flew in. And then it was kind of a, you know, French final signature of the deal. So I guess we were mediating or we were the bridge or the shoehorn to get the deal done. But the final deal was then done by the French and the Russians and the Georgians. We have talked before about how you have long been keen on Finland joining NATO, but is that balanced by a concern that, especially when dealing with Russia, that Finland may have moved itself out of that role of being the natural interlocutor if it's seen as now very much part of this particular bloc? Not really. I mean, I have two answers for that. One is to say that I kept on stressing to everyone that Finland chose its side when it was allowed to choose its side which basically was 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. That's when basically the things that had held us back for joining the European Union were removed. And the second one is to say that, you know, I think we're looking at a permanent security split in Europe. So on one side you'll have an isolated Russia and on the other side you have 44 European states. It's not going to pertain to the whole world, but as far as European security is concerned, you know, our football team was chosen a long time and it just got strengthened with us becoming NATO members. I think we should have done it in 1995, but I guess one can say better late than ever. What we're looking at in this episode is this idea that there is a a specifically Scandinavian approach to diplomacy, to mediation. You mentioned earlier Marti Atisari, and you are now chair of the Marti Atisari Peace Foundation. Do you think of him and the work he did as the best demonstration of what we're discussing? And if so, what particular virtues do you think he brought to his diplomacy? I mean, I I should probably add that in 2009 or 2010, when I was foreign minister, I gathered together with then foreign minister of Turkey, Ahmet Davatoglu, who later became prime minister as well. We gathered a group 
of Friends of Peace Mediation in the UN. It basically started with a handful of countries. And the latest I hear is it's approaching somewhere slightly south of or north of 80 countries. So, you know, we tried to continue that. I also had a special peace mediation representative who wasn't in government, but I took him from opposition, and that was the current foreign minister, Pekka Havisto. So one could say that we were working on creating a peace mediation profile or portfolio. Now, then I think you need some special characteristics. I mean, first of all, you need to have experience in international relations. Second, you need to speak languages. Third, you need to be respected by your peers and have some kind of a background. Marti Ahtisari had a very strong background in the UN. But at the end of the day, it's probably more about personality than nationality. But it doesn't hurt if you come from a country which is not exactly seen as revisionist, aggressive or imperialist, nor a former colonial state. I mean, we are probably, when we look at Ukraine in particular, a way off anything recognisable as a peace process. But would you expect that the Scandinavian countries could have a role to play as mediators, go-betweens, interlocutors there? Probably not in this particular case. I mean, obviously, we do a lot of work under the radar. So that's basically the, you know, silent signals that we're picking up and connections. And that's what NGOs and civil society can do probably much better than, you know, your your regular diplomatic channels. But you see, I think to a certain extent, Europe is not necessarily a direct part of this conflict, but it is certainly on one side. You know, you could say that it's a little bit like President Xi Jinping trying to mediate peace between Ukraine and Russia. Well, it's not very credible. So therefore, I don't think a European country or, you know, the Americans, let alone the Scandies, can do that. It has to be someone from the outside, most preferably, probably from the UN. I mean, has that been an aspect of the Scandinavian approach, though, that you are, to a large extent, somehow seen as outsiders in most places beyond Scandinavia? I think in the olden days, perhaps, you know, when we had the biggies of, you know, Hammarskjöld and, and others. But in today's world, we're such an integral part of what could be called the global West, including its key institutions, the European Union, and NATO. We have to keep in mind that soon all five Scandinavian countries will be fully-fledged members of NATO, and we have three countries that are members of the EU. So in that sense, to give us some kind of a mediator, neutral status, is difficult on an official level. But of course, we do have quite a strong tradition of peace mediation institutions and individuals who can do the work within an international context, be that in an NGO or in the UN. And just finally, and it is a question that I always enjoy putting to that rare, exclusive cohort of people who've done both jobs, is being foreign minister more fun than being prime minister? (laughs) For me, it probably was because I've always seen myself as an international relations buff. I mean, I got my PhD in international relations and All of the work that I had done happened within the context, first of the European Union institutions, the European Parliament as well. And then as foreign minister, I felt very much at ease. I quite often say that international relations is kind of easy. It's about war and peace. 
National politics gets a little bit nastier. The thing I will certainly stay away from is local politics because that's really brutal stuff. Professor Stubb, thank you for joining us. That was Alexander Stubb, the former Prime Minister of Finland, speaking to us from Helsinki. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Joining me now from Reykjavik is Hudni Tholesius Johannesson, President of Iceland. President Johannesson was formerly a Professor of History at the University of Iceland. Mr President, first of all, as a historian and a head of state, how would you describe Iceland's diplomatic character? Iceland is a small nation, a young state for that matter as well. And the basic tenet of Iceland's foreign policy is taking care of and advancing the national interest. But at the same time, you want to be a force for good globally. And uh, the best thing is when those two factors converge. Traditionally, Iceland relied heavily in the 20th century on the export of fish. Therefore, uh, an important aspect of Iceland's foreign policy was around securing markets for fish. So uh, we cannot hope and shouldn't strive to influence events on the world scene on a day-to-day basis. But we try to have our voice heard, especially in matters of direct, direct interest to us and where we feel that we can actually make a positive contribution. But nevertheless, you have spoken of, as you put it, turning smallness into a strength. What do you mean by that? How would that work practically? Well, sometimes it can be good to be small. You can find it easier to take quick decisions. And small states can sometimes take a moral stand, not worry over much about geostrategic aspects, focus on human rights and try to uh, influence the bigger parties on the world scene. Now, furthermore, it can be good to uh, use your smallness as strength, as for instance, during the so-called court wars, the fishing disputes between Britain and Iceland in the 1950s and the 1970s, when Iceland had its way gradually. And one reason not the only reason, was the fact that Iceland was a small state without a navy, without a military, and uh, you don't use full force against a defenseless small country like Iceland. So that's how you could punch above your weight. But at the same time, Iceland was important strategically, situated between East and West in the middle of the Atlantic during the Cold War. So the strategic importance of Iceland became a strong asset. We may have been small, but we were important. That importance increased our strength. Do you think Iceland could be perhaps more important, though? Because we're talking in this episode a lot about the frequency with which diplomats, current and former office holders from Norway, Finland and Sweden in particular, set off around the world to mediate and intercede in other conflicts. Iceland Mm. doesn't do quite so much of that. Is that something you think Iceland could or should contribute more to? I think we must direct our resources carefully. Norway, Finland, Denmark, Sweden are small, relatively speaking, compared to many other states in Europe. And we are tiny in that comparison. So we don't have the human power to offer 
in many parts of the world. So I think we should focus, focus our energy, focus our uh, resources. And ideally, we should focus on issues where we happen to know a thing or two about how to be a force for good. Let's take historically the law of the sea. Iceland mm -hmm. influenced the development of the law of the sea because it was of direct interest to us. Recently, Iceland has had a good record when it comes to gender equality. And therefore, we go and can go around the world full of confidence and tell others, all right, you want to also improve gender equality in your societies. This is how we have done it. So you can listen to us and we know what we're talking about. Green energy as well, geothermal, hydropower. These are issues we know well. Another issue would maybe be uh, children's rights, if we want to focus on societal issues as well. We have made good advances in protecting and advancing children's rights, children who have been subject to sexual offenses, for instance. So um, I believe that while we should definitely admire what our Nordic friends have been doing to intervene in war-torn zones, we should not strive to copy that completely. We don't have the resources to do that. Let's focus on what we know and what we can do and do it so that it actually helps and does not only put us in some positive light for a while. That would never be the main issue. On that subject, though, of, I guess, leading by example or setting an example, I have been reading your doctoral thesis on the Cod Wars. That actually is my idea of a good time. Is, <laughs> is there something to that extremely asymmetrical conflict which you think could serve as a lesson for other countries which find themselves in some or other conflict with a much more powerful opponent? Yeah, possibly. And I'm glad to hear that the number of people who have read my thesis <laughs> has increased by one, a considerable number. Yeah, I mean, as you know, as an avid reader of my doctoral thesis, <laughs> there are many reasons why Iceland did succeed ultimately in those conflicts. But one of them, for instance, was commitment. And I would never, ever compare our fishing disputes with a deadly prolonged war like Vietnam, for instance, but the United States, the mightiest military power on earth at that time, found that commitment mattered greatly in a conflict of that magnitude. So uh, I think it could be, yes, solace to smaller powers who face a much stronger adversary that if your national interest is at stake, your commitment increases. And conversely, for a much bigger state that doesn't see the wrong of its ways. Maybe leaders in those countries should also read my thesis and <laughs> learn that might does not make right and might will not always get you to the desired destination. You were speaking earlier about Iceland's unusual position geographically and diplomatically, and you alluded to the famous summit in 1986 between Ronald Reagan and, and Mikhail Gorbachev at the height of the Cold War in Reykjavik. Is that a role that you would like to see Iceland playing more of as a literal go-between between countries at conflict? Well, we're always ready to help if global leaders see Iceland as a venue for a meeting or to solve disputes or work in that direction. In May this year, we will hold the Council of Europe Summit, big undertaking. 
and we have good facilities here if you want to look at it in practical terms. So uh, Iceland as a venue for problem solving, I would support that. But we also know, and I have this Council of Europe meeting in mind, that it is a huge undertaking. And whether we can do this on a regular basis, I do not know. But main point being that Reykjavik as a venue for summits, conferences, meetings of that nature is ideal. We're between North America and Europe, easy to access, and the Icelanders are a friendly lot. <laughs> Just finally, though, Mr. President, I do have to ask about the one, I guess you could call it diplomatic row you have found yourself at the centre of. Have your views on pineapple on pizza <laughs> evolved at all? I have to stand by my conviction that uh, <laughs> while I like fresh pineapple, I just don't find it tasty on a pizza. And having gone through this whirlwind of debates <laughs> the last few years, I uh, know for a fact that the Italians are more or less on my side. Mm-hmm. And if any nation should know a thing or two about pizza, it would be them. Having said that, I will always defend the right of all people on this planet to (laughs) choose a topping that they like on their pizza, but I would always recommend seafood. Very diplomatically put, Mr. President. Thank you for joining us. That was Hudni Tholasius Johannesson, President of Iceland. This is The Foreign Desk. Finally, on today's show, while getting people around a table is often a challenge in itself, thought does have to be given to what shape that table should be, what kind of room it should be in, and what variety of chairs should be placed adjacent to it. I'm joined now by Heine Lettinen, a creative director and designer based in Helsinki. First of all, I was reading an interview you did recently with the Finnish architect Esa Laksonen. He mentioned the Arvo Part Centre in Estonia as kind of an ideal venue for this sort of thing. When it comes to spaces that make good venues to talk about peace, why would that one work? First of all, that location or that building is located in a very calming and peaceful environment. It's away from the hustle and bustle of a city, from traffic, from the busyness of whatever there is in a city. And also away from the media, because that also can be disturbing and distracting for peace dialogues. It's not a peace mediation center per se, it's a cultural center. It's located in a forest, surrounded by um, beautiful nature. Uh, There is a lot of daylight. The spaces and the building also show respect to the people visiting there. The natural setting or the idea of a peaceful natural setting, I guess the importance of that is pretty self-evident. But to the architecture itself, how much of a difference can that make? I mean, if we think of famous example of Scandinavian diplomacy, the Oslo Accords, and the early meetings were held at Borregard Manor near Sarpsborg, I suspect that was largely because it was kind of isolated as well and surrounded by peaceful nature. But that's obviously a very grand old school building. Can that kind of setting have an effect? In a sense that it shows respect uh, to all the participants when it comes to high-level peace dialogues. Usually the environment and the architecture should match 
the level of the dialogues. As part of that, is the design of furniture important? I mean, I, I guess the obvious one people always think about is the round table, so no one feels like they're necessarily in charge. But can things like that, the shape and size of the chairs, have an impact? Do you need to be careful, for example, that somebody doesn't have a bigger chair than everybody else? Definitely, yes. Of course, when it comes to tables, a round table is always equal and it's kind of uh, reminds us of a campfire also. And everyone should be able to hear each other. Everyone should be able to see each other. The distance between people is around the same. And when it comes to chairs, for instance, it also comes down to comfort. Uh, if you're sitting comfortably, you are more, more relaxed and you can focus on the topic in hand, on the dialogue. But if you're sitting uncomfortably, then you are also feeling physically uncomfortable. Eventually, you're feeling potentially emotionally a bit uncomfortable and psychologically a bit uncomfortable. And that also impacts how we behave and how we can focus. I was wondering about that genuinely, perhaps towards the end of a tense negotiation, and I realise this may be seen as sacrilege by Nordic designers of all people, but is there ever a case for making people uncomfortable, making them sit in a garishly painted, brightly lit room on unpleasant furniture? Absolutely. And that is also intentional in some cases. Sometimes it's a bit needed to make people a bit uncomfortable and out of their comfort zones. And that can be done through lighting or selection of chairs, but also, of course, you know, how you place people in a room in the space. You can place people, you know, sitting next to each other who don't really feel comfortable sitting next to each other, but they have to. It is intentional to choose. And also, I guess I realise this may not be necessarily your area specifically. How important is the catering? It's very important. Of course, food is always related to cultural context. So, you know, what kind of catering, what kind of food is respectful for the participants is one thing. But nutritionally, now if we have a heavy meal in the middle of the day, we just become a bit tired and unfocused. And that's not the desired outcome in a dialogue. Heine Lettinen, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.